What's happening, hardscapers? This is episode 52 of the How to Hardscape podcast, where we talk with you about how you can start and grow your hardscaping business. And today we're joined by Tyler Mattis, president of Reese Stone and Ray Rodenberg of Unilock. We take this episode to discuss retaining walls and a lot of information in regards to constructing one, what needs to be considered, and a lot of valuable resources available to you from Reese Stone and Unilock. So you'll want to tune in to this episode all the way to the end. And without further ado, here's our interview with Tyler and Ray. Today, we're joined by Tyler Mattis of Reese Stone and Ray Rodenberg of Unilock. They are both here to talk with us about an important subject, that of retaining walls. Tyler and Ray, thank you so much for joining me here. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's good to be here. It's great to have you both here. Ray is a veteran uh, guest on the show with his third appearance here. So our audience knows a lot about Ray, but Tyler, let's get started to learn a little bit more about yourself. Can you give our audience a little bit of a background about yourself in the industry? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Tyler Mattis. I'm the president of Reese Stone Retaining Wall Systems. Uh, I can't believe it, but I'm a 25-year veteran of the industry, which uh, blows my mind. But um, yeah, I've been doing this for, for quite a while. and um, uh, Reese Stone, if, you, if you're not familiar with the company, um, we're basically the kind of the inventor and the pioneer of the segmental retaining wall. It uh, started out in the early, I guess, 1970s when um, an- the founders, Angelo and Tony, purchased their uncle's block plant in Gormley, Ontario. And um, they started manufacturing retaining wall products at that time. And uh, then in, I think in the early 90s, they... Uh, um, sold their manufacturing to Unilock and became just a retaining wall licensor. And about the mid '90s is when I uh, they hired me straight out of school, and um, the rest, I guess, as you can say, is is history. Absolutely. So obviously, there's quite a, hi- a history there with Reese Stone. Can we talk a little bit more about that and uh, say their introduction into the industry? What did that look like? Uh, what was that first product that was offered? Can you give us a little bit more of a background on that? Yeah. So the uh, the plant, the the original plant, um, made uh, building blocks like cinder blocks and and patio slabs and that sort of thing. And uh, Angelo Reese was actually a civil engineer. And uh, his brother, Tony, kind of handled more of the construction end of things. And um, they started out by taking basically what's a patio slab and putting an integral tongue and groove into it and stacking it up instead of laying it flat. And uh, that was kind of the first product. It's called Pisa Stone, which is kind of like an iconic uh, product in the industry. It's about three inches thick, about two feet long, and about a foot deep. And um, that was their first patented, uh, patented product. But um, it was it was mainly used to uh, build like smaller landscape walls, planters, that kind of thing, maybe up to about three or four feet in height. It wasn't really until I think um, the early mid '80s that geogrid reinforcement started being um, used, and they could build the walls a little bit higher. But uh, that that's kind of how they got their uh, their humble start, and it uh, it took off uh, like crazy. Um, you know, I think. I look back at some of the old uh, articles that were written about uh, the Pisa stone system as being sort of this revolution. At that time, people were just either dry stacking natural stone or, or using reinforced concrete walls for retaining walls. So it, w- it was really a, a different way of looking at things. And, and I think uh, the Ricci brothers were credited for sort of starting the SRW uh, industry. 
So since that first Pisa wall, how have you seen this industry change? Uh, say, looking back at that point or from the point to which you entered Reese's Stone, how have you seen this industry change over this time period? Yeah, so it's definitely gone undergone like dramatic changes over the last two or three decades. Uh, and I think the main, the main thing is it's just become a lot more sophisticated. Uh, like I know from an engineering point of view, uh, I think when I first started, there was some pretty basic um, design methodologies and so on. Even I think a lot of contractors were kind of using general rules of thumb for how high they could go and, and so on. And that didn't always work out. Um, but now, you know, over the last 20 years or so, um, we've got proven vetted design methodologies and construction best practices and so on. Um, we've sort of taken what people considered to be uh, a landscape wall and uh, without really much regulation and kind of brought it into the statue where it should be, where it's, it's a designated structure according to the building code, um, like any other structure. And it's taken, taken kind of seriously that way. Reese Stone and Unilock together, um, we did a lot of, spent a lot of time working with government bodies and industry associations and so on. Um, so that retaining walls were treated with the same kind of level of uh, uh, respect, I guess, as, as other structures. So, you know, requiring proper engineered design, on-site inspection, and then obviously from the material side, stringent quality controls on the actual product uh, themselves. We've also kind of developed some pretty sophisticated uh, design programs and tools to analyze the walls so that we're, uh, we're making sure people have safe solutions out there. Yeah, this, uh, this education is so important and we're going to come back to this, but I, meant, I noticed you mentioned Unilock a couple times in there. So Ray, what is Unilock's relationship or partnership with Reese Stone uh, in terms of everything that, uh, you know, in terms of retaining wall products? Our history and actually my personal history goes back before Unilock. Actually, I, I've been at Unilock for 31 years, as you know. But prior to that, when I was a contractor, I, uh, you know, like a lot of contractors back in the day, were, you know, we graduated from railway ties to beautiful six by six pressure treated timbers. And uh, I remember coming through a subdivision where, uh, I saw this Pisa 2 wall. I didn't know what it was, but it was a brown Pisa 2, kind of a circular planter that was jutted out of a an embankment in the subdivision there. And I was so impressed. I thought, okay, I got to get that. And I never looked back. Actually, that that became my uh, my go-to wall. I, I think I used more brown Pisa 2 than anything else. I did a little bit of Pisa stone, but mostly it was Pisa 2. Yeah, and then moving on, uh, you know, when I uh, when I started at Unilock, we uh, we really didn't have a retaining wall. Uh, we had another product uh, called Slope Block, and it had a couple of iterations. And you know, we we uh, we did well with that product, but it didn't have a lot of the features that a lot of the Reese products had. And uh, when uh, when Reese Stone decided to uh, go into just like uh, licensing the product uh, to manufacturers around the world, we were approached to uh, to buy by their manufacturing facility in in Gormley, and then uh, from there it just it took off and grew, and it was a really good accompaniment to uh, uh, our other paving stone products. It was just a natural fit, and uh, it's been a good relationship, and 
and as the industry progressed, as just like Tyler was saying, you know, the, the uh, engineering now we've gone to a level, a level of sophistication with it. There was a day where a guy would say, Oh, how high can you go with a piece of two? And we would just say four feet, but that was, <laughs> that was a kiss remember those days. Those were the scary days, you know? <laughs> and then he yeah. would build a, he'd build a four foot high retaining wall and then park a, park a Hummer right next to the edge at the top of it. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think uh, there's there's been certainly some industry growing pains that way. But I, what I guess what impresses uh, us the most is that uh, Stone has taken the, you know, the high road, if you will, on the engineering and has really led the industry in a lot of ways with uh, with retaining wall engineering. And so it's been a really good partnership. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, an interesting thing there, which is a great segue to my next question in terms of engineering. Tyler, why is retaining wall engineering so important? Well, I think uh, retaining walls, by their very nature, um, you know, they're holding back uh, thousands of pounds of uh, of pressure and and we have to do it safely. So a, a failure in one of these types of walls could be disastrous. Uh, that's why we take it so seriously. Like we have walls holding up highways and, and, you know, high walls, 20 feet high in there next to schools and that sort of thing. So we really do make every effort to ensure all the elements have been designed properly with, you know, a lot more strength than, than what's absolutely necessary so that we don't uh, have any issues. It's not just the design. We've been really big advocates for getting proper inspection on the site. So, you know, you've got really three aspects to this thing. The design itself has to be done uh, really well. There's got to be really good inspection and then there's got to be great construction practice. So the three of those things have to come together and <clears throat> we've worked pretty hard to try to, you know, obviously work on the design, but then the other side of things I think is the education component um, for, for even for the geotechnical engineers out there that are doing this inspection. Um, we really try to make their job easier by giving them simple checklists and that sort of thing. Um, so that things are done right. Uh, you know, we, we've had, um, we've been very lucky in Ontario. Uh, we've, we've never really had any major issues. And, um, you know, I think a big testament to that is the fact that we have a lot of different, uh, you know, people working together to make sure these, these uh, walls are built, designed and built properly. And Tyler, I also think that, you know, what is unique about Richie Stone is the, the variety of products that you have, you know, that mm-hmm. you can adapt to different situations and help you um, engineer them efficiently. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. I think it's also like a testament to, to Uniloc's commitment to uh, um, providing their customers. You know, it, people don't necessarily realize it. You know, to have just one wall system is a, is a huge expense that, uh, you know, costs a lot of money in molds and, and all that sort of thing. But, um, you know, Uniloc, we've developed them, but Uniloc has gone ahead and, and manufactures a, wi- a very wide range of uh, products, which, which makes our job easier as engineers because we can look at a site and say, okay, we have a whole toolbox full of options here of what would best suit uh, a particular condition and, and so on. So we've got products like Durahold, for example, that's uh, about 1,700 pounds a unit. Um, and we've done some pretty amazing uh, uh, heavy-duty engineering projects with that, you know, right down to something like uh, a Rivercrest product, which is a, a, 
a natural kind of flagstone looking wall for uh, for smaller walls and so on. So and, and everything in between. So it's um, it's been a, a great relationship that way, too. Yeah. And, and speaking of which, with engineering, uh, my introduction into this industry was from the supplier end and just explaining to not only retail customers, but, uh, you know, some people starting out in the contracting world, what goes into building a retaining wall is more than just the wall itself. There's so much uh, engineering involved and explaining to them, like showing them that they're, the cost of materials are just going to skyrocket besides the retaining wall because of that engineering to make sure that that's going to stay in place. Uh, a lot of people don't understand this who are maybe not in the industry, which becomes more apparent as I became a contractor and explaining to customers then that, uh, you know, making sure that retaining wall is constructed properly is so important. So Tyler, what are the main factors that affect engineering in a retaining wall? What, uh, you know, what, what should we be looking for to decide uh, what goes into building that retaining wall? Right. So the, like, the main things that we look at right off the bat are obviously the wall height. Um, the higher the wall uh, is, uh, the more critical it is, the larger the wall has to be, just based on the simple fact that earth pressure increases with depth. So uh, the height of the wall is the main one. We look at loading behind the wall. For example, if there's very steep slopes, that increases the pressure behind the wall. Um, or if there's a presence of water, uh, in either in front or behind the wall, um, or other structures nearby, um, such as a building footing or something like that, uh, or even traffic loading. So, for example, if you're trying to hold up a roadway or a highway, um, that's going to exert more pressure on the wall. So. All of these factors kind of come into play uh, when when we're doing the engineering, and they they'll in, they'll have a big impact on what the final design looks like. Even things like soil conditions, you know, holding up a really high quality gravel material uh, is going to be easier than holding up, say, a native clay. So that would affect the size of the wall we need and 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 that sort of thing. So those factors all come into play, and then I guess from the design into things. Once we figure out what the loading is and the height of the wall and so on, we look at how much room we have to build the wall. Uh, that's usually a critical factor. Everyone wants to push their walls out right to the property line, which can sometimes be a bit of an issue. Um, so a very high wall close to a property line, we might be looking at something more of like a gravity wall rather than a geogrid reinforced wall uh, because it takes up a little less space. Um, but either way, in our office, we've got... Uh, four full-time professional engineers with about, I think about 75 years of combined experience. So uh, not much we haven't seen. And um, uh, although most projects provide some kind of challenge, we can usually uh, provide a, a solution for, uh, for just about anything. And can you explain a little bit about the different uh, elements of a retaining wall? I know it's uh, a very broad question and it's very site specific, but for a, a general retaining wall that you might see, what are we looking at in ter terms of installation and the different materials that would be used with that retaining wall in behind that retaining wall right. and, and so on? Yeah, so there's, there's different types of weight, uh, structure types that you can build. Um, the first is like a, a gravity wall. A gravity wall just uses the self-weight of the uh, SRW units themselves to resist the soil pressure. So a gravity wall is is uh, the simplest type of SRW. You know, you're kind of limited to how high you can go with that type of wall unless you start getting into 
bigger versions of it. Like we have a Sienna Stone 9, 925 wall, which has a three foot thick or three foot deep um, base unit. And we can go fairly high with that, you know, eight or nine feet um, in some situations. So that's a very simple type of wall. We're basically just using the weight of the mass of those units. And then we have a drainage layer behind it. And that, that's pretty much the wall. Underneath it, you have a, a basic leveling pad, which is a compacted gravel leveling pad. Then as you start getting higher, you, you can use uh, something called a geogrid reinforcement um, to start constructing the wall even higher. And, and with this, geogrid is like a, best way to describe it is like a high strength um, mesh. And it's usually made out of polyester and coated in uh, like a polyethylene. And it's used as a tieback in the soil to kind of reinforce the soil. And we've, we've constructed walls, you know, 30, 35, 40 feet high with uh, the geogrid reinforcement kind of doing most of the work. I think the best way, you know, describe it kind of in lay terms, the geogrid works um, kind of like reinforced con uh, sorry, reinforcing steel and concrete. It provides uh, like that tensile element compacted gravels and so on are very strong in compression, like pressing down on them, but they have no strength when you're trying to pull them apart. Uh, just like concrete has very, a lot less strength in tension. So these elements added, added, added in layers, add that tensile uh, capacity. And, and we, we end up creating this, what's called a composite mass. Um, so it works very well. And, and we've been, uh, we've been able to construct some pretty impressive projects using both of these methods, the gravity walls, as well as the geogrid reinforced walls. So sticking on this topic of installation a little bit more, and, and Ray, I, I'm sure you have a lot of knowledge in this, uh, this category as well. Uh, a lot of guys, you know, have used a gravel uh, granular a for their bases in the, in the, in the past. And we're seeing a, a shift towards, you know, using three quarter clear um, in terms of say, an installation of the, uh, you know, extending past the wall as well as extending in front of the wall for the base and the placement of a drainage tube in behind the wall. Uh, can, can either of you two speak a little bit about that? I think that's, uh, I think Tyler Elm there in terms of what's required in an injured wall. I can t certainly tell you what I put in the field, um, but some of them may not conform to, you know, what is the absolute best practice and and actually Tyler might even agree that there might be uh, you know several different ways to uh, to approach uh, you know uh, the installation yeah the the, ba the base is obviously a very very important part uh, of the installation because that first course that goes down on top of it um, depending on how well that goes in everything else is going to be affected by it so contractors usually spend quite a bit of time with the base in the first course. So, so it is a pretty important element. As far as the material goes, we usually spec a granular, a granular A as our base, which is like a well-graded gravel. Uh, we like that. It compacts very well. Um, you can use a, a more of a gap-graded material, like a three-quarter clear. The issues you get into a little bit more there is it's a little bit more difficult to level just because of the, uh, the size of the aggregates. Um, that's the first thing. And then because you've got big open voids in that aggregate, um, there could be a tendency of when you're compacting them, driving them right into the sub subgrade. Um, whereas you don't have that with a, uh, um, 
a granular A, which is a well-graded material. It has, you know, it's very tight and compact and doesn't have an, as many voids, so you don't get material migrating into it. So we, we like the granular A as a base. Usually it's compacted to uh, 98% standard proctor density. Um, so it makes a very uh, solid leveling surface. The NCMA, which is the National Concrete Masonry Association, they're sort of the governing body um, on best practices and construction guidelines. They're recommending a minimum six inch thick base where the, uh, um, the base extends six inches in front and behind the, the block. Reese stone has sort of always had a bit of bit more of a rule of thumb where we say whatever the block thickness is, that's how thick the base should be and that's how far it should extend in front and behind. So for example, uh, our piece of two block is at six inch height. We specify six inch, inches in front, behind and, and deep or below. Um, Sienna stone is uh, seven inches, just over seven inches. So we, we uh, up it a little bit to seven inches in front, behind and below. Uh, and then dura hold, which is 12 inches, we do the same thing. So we kind of have our, there's a minimum industry standard and then we have an, a way that we know that sort of best practices worked for years for us and that's kind of what we follow. You, you also mentioned the, uh, the drain behind there. There's a couple different approaches. Um, typically, um, if there's a catch basin to connect into or some kind of a positive outlet, we like to see the drain at the very lowest point in the wall, which would be just behind the gravel base, um, sitting kind of just above the foundation soil. That's going to collect everything, and, and uh, but obviously you've got to make sure that you've got somewhere to connect it to. It's got to be a positive outlet. If you don't have a catch basin nearby, the other option is to outlet the drain through the face of the wall, um, which is done quite a bit as well. The only thing you have to keep in mind there is uh, if you're putting the collection drain basically above grade in front of the wall, you got to make sure that the material that's compacted underneath the drain is a lower permeability type of soil so that uh, water percolating down through the reinforced zone gets picked up by the drain and kind of stopped there at least momentarily so that it can get uh, outlet through the face as opposed to you know trickling down below the drain and just sitting at the base and having nowhere to go. Th th those are sort of the two main, um, main ways of looking at it. Sort of in the non-engineered world, I know because, you know, uh, clear stone has taken such a hold and in terms of the paving stone installation side of things, and guys have had really good luck with, um, you know, using the three-quarter clear with a small chip stone on top for leveling purposes. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we manufacture now a, a product, uh, it's a, a, it's a, a base unit called, we just call it universal base unit. And uh, leveling those in is, is ideal, especially, you know, on these small residential jobs where if you can get all these base units in, then when it comes time to do the, the placement of the, the wall blocks, uh, you have, um, you know, you have a nice surface to work on regardless of the weather. So, but again, you've got to, you've got to make sure that that first, uh, what did you call it, Tyler? Toe in, that toe in is, how how deep is it typically in, um, for a three-foot wall? The embedment or the amount actually buried, uh, it's a minimum of uh, six inches or typically about 10% of the wall height. So, you know, a three-foot wall like Ray referred to, 
you, you want about six inches of the wall um, buried. So if you've got a six inch base and six inches buried, your trench would be about 12 inches deep from grade. Um, but as you start going up higher, 10 foot wall, something like that, um, you, you start to go toward the 10%, which would be about a foot buried. Um, and we can kind of follow those guidelines in, in general until you starts getting a little more complicated with steep slopes in front of the wall and so on, which require you to bury even more of it. But uh, that's another hour session. <laughs> yeah. So continue on here uh, in behind the wall. Uh, can you, you, you mentioned GeoGrid and what it is. And can you talk a little bit about how it's used in terms of behind the wall, uh, what our drainage stone looks like? And as well as where does that GeoGrid uh you know, I don't want to say typically because every wall is different, but typically go and where does it extend to? to? Does it go ever past that uh, drainage material in behind and into the native subsoil? No, it's uh, the reinforced zone is a is a is a, the zone behind the wall that's uh, it's it's always excavated out completely and then and then backfilled. So typically a geogrid, the length of a geogrid is about sixty percent to seventy percent of the wall height. So 10 foot high wall, you'd have six or seven foot length of geogrid, which includes the block facing as well. Um, so you'd have to excavate back that full, you know, six or seven feet to be able to construct the wall. So that's, a, it's a completely kind of composite mass that you create. You never, you never anchor it back into that soil. Um, when you talk about a drainage layer, um, we're very fortunate in um, um, this market uh, in Ontario to have a lot of, uh, high quality free draining gravels. So we, we actually construct our entire reinforced zone with something like a granular bee or a, another type of well-graded uh, free draining gravel. Um, I know down in the US, uh, a lot of locations, they don't have the availability of those materials. So as a result, <clears throat> they have a bit of a different method of construction where you create a uh, 12 inch or 18 inch uh, drainage stone layer right behind the block. And then that's followed by some type of engineered fill material, um, which is still a, a, what they consider granular material, but it can be uh, have a high, higher fine content. So it might be something that's native to the site that's used there. So it basically it boils down to if you don't have, uh, if you have more than what 8% uh, fine material, fine content, which is like your clays and silts, in it, um, you need to add those drainage layers uh, behind the wall, maybe, sorry, behind the facing, maybe even behind the reinforced zone um, to catch any water coming in there. So that, that's kind of like the, the, the general construction of the wall. The geogrid is typically um, vertically spaced at about uh, 18 to 24 inch centers until you start getting to very high walls. And then the geogrid starts to get very tight. Um, in terms of the spacing, you know, 12 inches, that sort of thing. So that, that's the general arrangement uh, of the backfill and the geogrid. Perfect. And in terms of uh, one, one final note on installation, as we build our wall up, how should our drainage layer in behind the wall be coming up with that wall? Uh, and should we be compacting it and so on? Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, so right, right behind the wall, like I mentioned, if, if, if you're doing a drainage layer, um, the, the drainage layer basically comes up with the block. So you don't want to stack any more than about two, two blocks, three blocks at the most before you start backfilling uh, with your drainage layer. 
or in the case of this market here, until you start backfilling with your, uh, your pure gravel uh, that's going to compose the entire reinforced zone. So that, that's how you kind of come up um, in terms of the, uh, the construction of it. Um, so you don't want to go much farther than that. Within about a three feet or a meter behind the wall, the NCMA recommends you only use a, um, a walk-behind, hand-operated uh, com compactor. Um, this area here, you got to be a little bit careful. If you over-compact, you can start pushing the blocks out during construction. So that's why they kind of recommend only the uh, walk-behind type of uh, compaction equipment within three feet um, behind the wall. And then past that, you can go to the heavier stuff. But that sort of protects the wall as you're constructing it, protects the alignment of the wall as you're going up and make sure that you don't, uh, you don't over compact either your drainage layer or your reinforced, uh, reinforced material. Using uh, adhesive in your walls, uh, would any of you be interested in, in talking about that? Basically, um, adhesive, if, if, some, if, if you're building a, like a smaller uh, two-sided seat wall or something like that, uh, say with the Rivercrest product or, or something similar, because people are going to be interacting with that wall, sitting on it and, uh, you know, so on, uh, it's probably not a bad idea to use an adhesive. Um, but for typical structural wall applications, you know, with geogrid reinforcement and so on, um, we do not require it, uh, except maybe under the cap, uh, the coping unit at the top. If it's a small hand place system like Pisa 2, we'd say, you know, glue the cap down, um, but something like Durahold or Sienna Stone, um, again, we don't require people to use an adhesive um, on that, but uh, for, the, for the smaller, like I call them uh, like um, backyard living walls and that kind of thing, then it's probably not a bad idea. I don't, I don't know. What's your thought on that, Ray? Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I, you know, you hit the nail, uh, the nail on the head, uh, seat walls, you know, grill islands and, and bars and pillars and things yeah. like that, that maybe so to people sitting on them or leaning against them. Um, it's a, it's a good practice to use some adhesive. Um, yeah. but they are, they are called gravity walls for a reason. So for most applications, it's not required except for those backyards. Awesome. So with all of this said and all of this installation engineering, Tyler, what are some mistakes? And, and maybe you can speak on this too, Ray. What are some mistakes that you've seen contractors out there doing or mistakes that when you look at a wall, you can say, they didn't do this, they missed this. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I, I think since, since when I first started, uh, way back when, uh, the contractors have come a long way. And I think, to be honest with you, most of them nowadays are, are excellent. On occasion, I'll see... Uh, the odd one, it's pretty rare, but I'll see the odd one uh, taking GeoGrid and rolling it out along the length of the wall as opposed to the way it should be done, which is cutting it to the specified lengths and, um, and running it perpendicular to the, uh, to the wall. So that, that's kind of one sort of rookie mistake that I, I've seen done uh, before. But uh, like, like I said, I think uh, most contractors have come a long way. Um, you know, back when I first started, like I said, there was guys sort of using rule of thumb and just stacking walls up without design or without drainage behind them. And those walls typically, you know, had issues. But uh, nowadays, I think uh, most, most of them are pretty sophisticated. Uh, Unilock's done a lot of training. We've done a lot of training. and We create pretty extensive installation guides and so on. So uh, most of the guys are up to speed. And luckily, uh, we don't see a lot of those uh, 
those issues anymore. Yeah, I would agree. You know, the only issue that I, you know, maybe see out feel is when, and it's more just in landscape walls. Once you get into higher walls, the guys realize that, you know, they're on the hook for repairs and they, they want to, they want to mitigate, uh, any liability. So, you know, they're, they're all over the engineering. Um, and you know, we've, we've people in the, our training sessions that, and we've kind of preached that story for, for quite a, quite a while. The, uh, residentially though, you'll see projects that are, you know, guys will think, Oh, this all is only 10 feet high or three yeah. feet high. I don't need an engineer, but not really paying attention to, you know, some of the other uh, loading conditions, drainage conditions, even global stability. I, I've seen like just two and a half foot high walls built on an embankment. And uh, that can be tricky too, yeah. because you, the embankment can, can slide. So it's usually some guys that get, you know, they're the kind of the know-it-all guys that just sort of, ah, I know what, this will work, this will be fine, you know. Yeah. But I think sometimes we just have to take a little extra precaution and as Tyler started out by saying, hey, this is a structural wall. This is a structure. Even if it is only two feet high, it's structural. Yeah. And um, so I think if, if people take anything away from this podcast is that always think, always think about the application and, and uh, you know, how it has to perform and what it has to do. Yeah. And to kind of to add to that point, you know, there's no reason not to get the, you know, Reese Stone and Unilock involved with the project. There, there's really no reason for it. We, you know, we provide engineering design services here. Um, and, uh, you know, in terms of the cost, it's nominal. Uh, so it, there's really, it, it, it's, it's very cheap insurance to, uh, to do it right. And believe me, it'll cost you a heck of a lot more uh, to fix it. <laughs> Absolutely. And in terms of that, uh, that engineering, and we're based here in Ontario. So uh, what is the, um, say, maximum height that you can go without engineering? And what is that threshold that then you need engineering? The, uh, the National Building Code requires uh, an engineered seal design for walls, um, a meter and over in height. There are, there are some municipalities. Um, locally that that actually require it for walls that are 0.6 meters over and in height so you kind of have to check with your local building department but but generally that's kind of where uh, uh, where it sits 0.6 to a meter in height so that I, I think it's not for much our American friends that's about two feet right <laughs> right yeah <laughs> two to three feet yeah gotcha gotcha and uh, and once again we, we hear you know a lot coming up in conversation with Reese Stone Ray what are some of the products that we will see uh, manufactured under license from Reese Stone well uh, we've got we've got quite a few um, I'm not gonna go into them um, because people can certainly go to our website and you know 85 to 90 percent of the walls that we manufacture are all uh, manufactured under license from Reese but you know, some of the, the famous ones, of course, are the Pisa and Pisa 2. We now have a Pisa Smooth up in, up in Canada uh, with a smooth face, uh, as well as Sienna, which is a, a larger scale. Used to have a, a split face. We also have a smooth face one now. Durahold has been sort of the, the industrial uh, godfather of retaining walls. And then uh, 
we we have tumbled products uh, such as Roman Pisa as well, and then we have uh, an interesting product that is is one that uh, Tyler developed, uh, and that is the the River Crest. Tyler and his team, and uh, in collaboration with with some Uniloc people, developed this fantastic. It's almost like dry drywall stacked flagstone look, but with uh, a more engineered approach and and also a rapid insulation approach to that product and certainly if, if somebody hasn't tried it it's if you want that natural stone flagstone look uh it's an excellent uh, excellent product absolutely and a lot of uh a lot of walls that are coming out onto the market that just look beautiful and and tyler in other than the appearance you know, how should a contractor be consulting with their uh, their homeowner or whatever it may be to choose a wall that's suited for their purpose? What should they be going through? I, I think, um, you know, the best resource, I think, out of the gate is their uh, their Uniloc territory manager, or they can give uh, Reese Stone Systems a call. That's, that's no problem. But really, what it comes down to is, is you know, certain products lend themselves better to uh, certain conditions or certain products. Uh, um, projects. So if you've got a relatively high wall, um, you said the contractor has to start asking themselves, uh, do I have access to bring in a big block system or is it, uh, you know, the access is limited. So I have to do more of a hand place wall system. So those kinds of constraints start leading you in a direction one way or the other, uh, you know, is it a commercial job? Is it a residential job? Uh, like we kind of talked about before, Reese Stone and Unilock offer a huge range of products from, you know, appearance-wise, but also from a structural uh, point of view. Um, some do curves really well. Some are better for straight runs, that kind of thing. So the layout, the alignment of the wall is another factor um, that comes into play, how much space you have to build it. So there's a, there's a lot of factors. Um, there's great resources on both the Reese Stone and the Unilock website. The Unilock territory managers are product experts. And, you know, if the contractor has questions, one thing we do here at Reese Stone day in and day out is sort of take a, the initial glance at a project and say, okay, here's your issues right out of the gate. Um, this, you know, this is the best product for your, uh, your application and, and provide some guidance um, in that way. So a lot of times we're not necessarily producing a design. We're just having a discussion with a contractor about what's really going to fit into uh, their site best um, given the constraints and conditions and so on. Obviously, Reese Stone and Unilock, two amazing resources that everyone can go check out. And closing closing up this interview, Ray, when a contractor has a wall in the planning process, what's the first thing that they should be doing? You know, just going back to what Tyler had said, it's really about uh, contacting the territory manager and they'll take a look at all the, the parameters with the contractor and get that information back for a design. Um, but in regards to, you know, getting things done by machine as opposed to back labor, definitely, you know, you want to take a look at the Durahold and CN, especially if you're raised backyard up like six feet or seven feet because there's a pool going in and you've got to level off the property. These are perfect products because usually that site's turn up anyway because of the pool and there's machinery in there and you can get these big heavy duty walls put in. And it certainly gives the customer a lot of mind to see these units go in. And they can go in, it's just a lot easier than handwork. 
in uh, in our U.S. operations, we have uh, a product uh, called uh, Pisa XL, which is a wide version of Pisa 2, and that can be uh, put in with our Unilift. I know, Mike, we've talked about the Unilift machine already, but Unilift uh, easily picks up these blocks. They're 70 pounds each. Uh, it could be a lot of hard work to do that by hand. And again, the Unilift allows you to put in sort of what appears to be a hand-placed unit with a machine, making it much easier. Absolutely. And so much great information in this podcast. And and Ray and Tyler, thank you so much for your time, but also thank you so much for taking a topic that would be, you know, better off shown visually and really taking it and, and putting it into a very simple uh, verbal approach with this podcast. Uh, lots of great information, lots of great explanation. Tyler, let's start with you. How can our, where can our audience go to learn more about Reese Stone and, uh, and everything that you guys are about? Yeah, I think obviously the main place would be ReeseyStone.com. Um, we've uh, actually spent quite a bit of time over the last uh, two years totally revamping the website, trying to make it uh, easier to access all the resources that we have available there. So one of the main things I, I kind of wanted to point out um, we have a new wall estimation tool, which is uh, really an industry first. It allows the contractor to go in and basically just draw a plan view of the wall. Um, you could do it on an iPad, you could do it uh, um, on a PC, whatever. Um, enter in a few grades and it actually will generate a quick estimation of your wall quantities in terms of your geogrid, your backfill, um, the face area of the wall, coping, corner units, everything. So it's uh, it's pretty uh, it's a pretty unique tool. Um, again, it's on ReeseyStewart.com under the uh, the resources, and we have all of our installation guides posted there um, for just about every product, PDF form. You can print them out. Um, we have a whole library, literally hundreds of typical cross sections in CAD and PDF that you can, uh, you can do a quick search on, just say the, you know, the wall type you want, the height you want, and it'll go through uh, uh, this huge library. Same thing with details. We have CAD and PDF details for just about every wall system, for everything you can think of from you know, installing a handrail to building a corner. Um, they're, all, they're all there. They've been built up over many, many years. And uh, it's, uh, it's just a wealth of, uh, of resources in there. So. That, that's where I'd say go first and then obviously give our engineers a call. That's what we're here for. And we can uh, yeah, take a look at your projects and, um, and help you through to the best solution. Excellent. And that's an awesome resource that our audience should definitely check out. And Ray, turning it over to you, where can our audience go to learn more about Unilock? Well, they can go to unilock.com, of course. And uh, certainly, uh, you know, from an Im images perspective and uh, We've tapped into, of course, the, all the Reese Stone resources, um, but uh, the most comprehensive resources, you know, you will find at the Reese Stone site. If a, if a contractor is looking to learn more about the appearance um, and the, the project types, um, I, would, I would suggest even for them to hashtag any of the, or a, do a search on Instagram and hash, uh, for the hashtags of any of the products. So hashtag Durahold, hashtag Pisa, 
hashtag Pianostone, the way they can see images and applications and projects. And this might even help them in their sales process. Thank you for listening to today's podcast episode. Visit us at howtohardscape.com for more information on this subject. Let us know what you want to learn about in future episodes by reaching out to us on our social channels. We are at How to Hardscape everywhere. And once again, thank you to everyone that has been sharing this episode tagging us at how to hardscape on instagram facebook wherever you might be sharing it and also to those who have been taking the time to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review on apple podcasts we really appreciate these coming in and thank you so much for just tuning in each and every week to these episodes we hope you're getting lots of valuable information from these episodes and we look forward to meeting with you next week on the how to hardscape podcast